Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book, but also the podcast stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. We're continuing with part two of chapter one of our internet history. And when we last left things, Mark Andreessen had left the NCSA, disgruntled or pushed out, depending on your point of view. And we find him now in Silicon Valley in early 1994, where he has taken a job at a company called Enterprise Integration Technologies. And this is where we will pick things up and, in this episode, look at the founding of Netscape Communications Corporation and the development of the Netscape Navigator web browser. The Silicon Valley that Mark Andreessen found himself in in early 1994 was actually at a historical low ebb especially considering what was soon to be in store for it. The short but actually sharp recession of the early 1990s was coming to an end, and IT spending was starting to come back. But as the Newsweek and Fortune magazine journalist David A. Kaplan described in his book The Silicon Boys, quote, The PC era was now maturing and wasn't the fiscal turbine it once was. Few companies, apart from Intel, were showing the profit margins that Wall Street wanted. There hadn't been a big idea in years, unless you counted Larry Ellison deciding to grow a beard. End quote. Mark Andreessen himself put it this way, quote, Everyone seemed rather morose, kind of looking at each other and asking why nothing exciting seemed to be happening in the valley anymore. End quote. The next big thing. A lot of this episode is going to focus on finding the next big thing. The NCSA had it because Mark Andreessen had helped build it for them. Mark Andreessen was looking for it because the NCSA had taken Mosaic away from him. Silicon Valley was looking for it because the go-go days of the 1980s and the personal computer revolution were over. And across Silicon Valley, a man named Jim Clark was looking for it because he wanted, well, revenge. As many of you know, Jim Clark is a legend in Silicon Valley, so it's worth um, taking some time to take a look at his story. Jim Clark is famous for founding three different billion-dollar companies. Quite a rare feat to pull off. At the time that Mark Andreessen reached Silicon Valley, Clark was still at billion-dollar company number one, Silicon Graphics, or SGI from now on. The problem was SGI had recently been taken away from him, or at least that's how he looked at it. He had lost his baby too, sort of just like Mark Andreessen was feeling. And that's why he was looking for his revenge. 
he wanted a second act. Oftentimes, second acts are the best form of revenge. No doubt many of you would know the author Michael Lewis from his books like The Big Short and uh, Moneyball. But actually, in the late 90s, he also had a book that was a quasi-biography of no less than Jim Clark, titled, well, perfectly for our purposes here, The New New Thing. The way Lewis describes it, Jim Clark is a born rebel, an entrepreneur straight out of central casting. Lewis elegized Clark as the sort of new-era capitalist who, quote, could have made it big at no other time in history. He made it big because he was uniquely suited to this historical moment. He was built to work on the frontier of economic life when the frontier was again up for grabs. He was designed for rapid social and technological change. He was the starter of new things." End quote. Jim Clark was born March 23, 1944, in Plainview, Texas. He endured a difficult, fatherless childhood and was a high school dropout. Joining the Navy, he was introduced to electronics and higher mathematics. Despite his lack of a high school diploma, after his time in the Navy, he was admitted to the University of New Orleans, where he earned a bachelor's and a master's degree in physics. He received his Ph.D. in computer science from the University of Utah, where he was involved in the research that led to the development of computer-aided design, or CAD. He taught electrical engineering at Stanford University, and his research at the legendary Xerox Park Research Center, which gave the world, among other innovations, laser printing, Ethernet, the modern personal computer, the graphical user interface, and object-oriented programming, led to the Geometry Engine an early hardware accelerator for rendering computer images based on geometric models. Clark employed the geometry engine as a basis to found a company, Silicon Graphics, in 1982. SGI was one of the most successful Silicon Valley startups of the 1980s, in fact. It produced computer terminals and workstations that could design and render 3D graphics. Those dinosaurs in the movie Jurassic Park that seemed so lifelike, Silicon Graphics made that possible. If you currently work in graphics or computer-aided design of any kind, then uh, Jim Clark is sort of a godfather to your industry. But Jim Clark's tenure at Silicon Graphics did not end on a happy note, and this is something of a complicated story, so I'm going to do my best to try to sum it up this way. Initially, see, Silicon Graphics made its money by selling high-end, roughly $70,000 workstations. But by the end of the 1980s, Moore's Law was making possible cheaper, smaller, but just as effective machines from the likes of companies like Sun Microsystems. For his part, Clark wanted the company to move in the cheaper direction as well, but he couldn't infect the change internally. The reason he couldn't was that Clark, despite being one of SGI's founders, had lost effective control of the company. Over the years, the need to raise venture capital had repeatedly diluted Clark's ownership so that, despite Silicon Graphics' billion-dollar market cap and valuation, Clark himself only had a net worth of about $20 million or so. Also, and crucially, this ownership dilution lost Clark control of the company's board of directors. As the 1980s turned into the 1990s, Clark's hand-picked CEO, Ed McCracken, was taking greater control of the day-to-day -day operations of SGI. In Clark's view, he was actively being muscled out of any sort of role in the company's strategic decision-making. McCracken, the erstwhile CEO, wanted... Silicon Graphics to stay in the high-end workstations and protect the company's cash cow. This was the exact opposite of what Clark wanted. And so, in early 1994, after years of behind-the-scenes squabbling, Clark announced that he was stepping down from his one remaining role as chairman of SGI's board of directors. Clark told SGI and the press that he wanted to start a new company. 
This time, he decided, he would do things his way. The trouble was, Clark didn't know what his new company would do exactly. He had some vague ideas about creating software or hardware for interactive television, what was at the time being called the Information Superhighway. And the Information Superhighway was supposed to be the next big thing, which was exactly what Clark wanted to be a part of, of course. He even went so far as to have exploratory meetings with companies like Time Warner and Nintendo. After all, if interactive TV was the next big thing, then you could do worse than having the founder of Silicon Graphics help you build the set-top systems. As we'll see in the next chapter, Clark was not alone in seeing the information superhighway as the next big thing. He was in fact a bit of a visionary when it came to imagining the future of interconnected devices. In the early 1990s, he had authored a research paper entitled The Telecomputer, where he imagined a future information network that users would be able to access through their cable television systems. Before he even left CGI, Clark had been instrumental in forging relationships with cable and telecom companies to possibly produce the next generation of devices that would make interactive TV possible. But of course, Ed McCracken had muscled him out of those discussions as well, so it was logical that Clark would think of interactive TV as a quick way to enact his revenge. But really, Clark was just casting around for anything that would give him his second act. So he was open to ideas. Any ideas. Whatever his new company ultimately ended up doing, Clark knew he would need some talented people, and especially talented engineers, to make it a reality. Unfortunately, the terms of his leaving Silicon Graphics meant that Clark couldn't poach from his former company. So he turned to his friend Bill Foss for advice. In his own autobiography, Jim Clark described a conversation between himself and Bill Foss that summed up the situation like this. Clark says to Foss, quote, I'm really stymied by this situation. I don't know how to start a company without engineers, but every good engineer I've ever known I've recruited here, and I can't take them with me. Foss apparently then asked him, quote, Well, what about Mark Andreessen? He just moved to Palo Alto from Illinois. End quote. As Clark wrote in the autobiography, by Bill's tones, I could tell he assumed that this was a name I would obviously recognize. I rifled through my memory and came up empty. End quote. By way of explaining who Andreessen was, Foss loaded up a version of Mosaic onto Clark's computer. According to Foss, he remembers watching Clark quote, go up to it and do this thing where he kind of sits up and kind of squints a little at the screen. He said, ah, I just remember leaving him, clicking his way through the interface on that thing, End quote. Clark must have been impressed with the Mosaic browser because before his first session was over, he had found his way to Mark Andreessen's personal webpage. He sent the following note to Andreessen's personal email address, quoting from the email, Mark. You may not know me, but I'm the founder and former chairman of Silicon Graphics. As you may have read in the press lately, I'm leaving SGI. I plan to form a new company. I would like to discuss the possibility of your joining me. Jim Clark. So, sometime in early 1994, Jim Clark and Mark Andreessen met at 7 a.m. at a coffee place in Palo Alto called Cafe Verona. I looked up Cafe Verona, by the way. It's no longer there, but actually it plays a role in the uh, history of the founding of Yahoo as well, as we'll see in a later chapter. Remember, Andreessen had, at this point, been working at Enterprise Integration Technologies, so he wasn't exactly unemployed, but he certainly was interested in meeting with Jim Clark. He certainly knew who Clark was, because back at the NCSA, the computer he used to create Mosaic was a Silicon Graphics Indigo workstation. So even if he was gainfully employed, Andreessen was very interested in whatever new venture Jim Clark might be cooking up. As Andreessen later remembered it, quote, It was the first time I'd woken up at 7 a.m., as opposed to having still been up at 7 a.m., in about four years. I remember being mostly tired. He, Clark, said, quote, I want to start a new thing, I just don't know what it is yet. But I want to figure it out, and I'm looking for people to do it with me, end quote. 
Jim was probably talking to a dozen people at that point, end quote. Clark was probably still thinking along the lines of software for interactive TV or a network gaming system for Nintendo. We can assume that Mark Andreessen gave him his input on whatever it was Jim Clark was thinking about at the time, and apparently whatever it was that Mark Andreessen said was enough to impress Jim Clark because he invited Andreessen to join a sort of brain trust that he was putting together to come up with his next venture. This brain trust included several colleagues that Clark had worked with over the years, including Bill Foss. This brain trust would meet regularly at Clark's home, although uh, some reports indicate that they often met on Clark's yacht. Clark was very into yachting as a hobby, as we'll see later. But again, it's somewhat murky trying to figure out what exactly the ideas were that they were kicking around. One report I read indicated that Andreessen might have helped Clark put together the business plan for the Nintendo project and may even have been involved in the meeting that Clark took with Nintendo. Now, the obvious idea for a new business, of course, is to build off the success that Andreessen had had with Mosaic. But again, the reports are contradictory at best. Clark's own autobiography says that Andreessen wanted nothing to do with revisiting Mosaic whatsoever. According to the autobiography, Andreessen told Clark at their first Cafe Verona meeting, quote, I'm finished with all that Mosaic shit, end quote. But clearly, taking another crack at Mosaic, or a Mosaic-like project, was the most obvious project that they could have pursued. So I do have to wonder whether or not if, as Clark remembers it, a new mosaic was something that they circled around to only after weeks of kicking around other ideas. As Clark's version of events goes in his autobiography, it was only in late March, on a Tuesday, at about one in the morning, when, out of frustration, Clark finally turned to Andreessen and said simply, You come up with something to do, and I'll invest in it. Clark says that Andreessen said, well, we could always build a mosaic killer. If this indeed is how Netscape was born, it seems somewhat hard to square with what uh, both Andreessen and Clark were to say later. According to Andreessen, it was obvious to him from the very beginning that the web was the information superhighway. So any projects involving interactive TV or the information superhighway in general, didn't make any sense. Clark didn't have to chase dreams of interactive TV or cut deals with cable companies. The future was already here, and millions of people were already using it. Mosaic had proven that. As Clark apparently came around to this point of view, the notion that thrilled him the most was the idea that they could pounce on this opportunity first. Let the rest of the world develop the information superhighway, he realized that he and Andreessen would deliver it before the rest of the world was any wiser. Users of the web were doubling every few months at that point. Absolutely exponential growth. Clark was later to say famously he didn't know how he could make money off of a, another browser project, but with growth like that, he figured that there would surely be a way to profit eventually. In addition to this, there had been plenty of talk about getting the band back together, as it were, and reuniting Andreessen with his colleagues from the original Mosaic team. They had already enjoyed one phenomenal success, and Clark seemed to be eager to replicate that. So I just find it a little hard to believe that they didn't think of doing another Mosaic from the very beginning. I suppose maybe it was a matter of Mark Andreessen gaining Jim Clark's trust, or Jim Clark talking Mark Andreessen into doing another browser project, whatever the truth, their great insight was that the next big thing was already here. It wasn't the information superhighway, and in fact, in the next chapter, we'll explode the myth that the information superhighway and the web were one and the same. That was a fantasy that led a lot of people astray, uh, not the least of which being Bill Gates. But again, the next big thing was already here. It was the web, the internet. They were sitting on it. It was right in front of their noses. Mosaic, or a web browser, that was the key. 
That was the next big thing. And so, what would eventually become Netscape was formally incorporated as Mosaic Communications Corporation on April 4th, 1994. So, both of our boys have their next big thing. They're going to build a new web browser, try to replicate the success that Mosaic had, and hopefully do what Mosaic did, which was piggyback off the exponential growth of the World Wide Web. Growth at this point was so exponential, millions of users becoming tens of millions, hundreds of millions, and who knew, billions within years. Surely they would find a way to make money off that sort of growth someday. It's become something of a trope of the internet era. Entrepreneurs look at the internet as sort of a wild west, a wide open environment. If you get there first and plant your flag, Everything's so wide open, growth is so exponential, that, well, don't worry about how you'll make money. Don't worry about what your product will do or how it'll fit into a marketplace. Just get there. Get it out there and figure the rest out later. This pattern, it's edifying to see, was there as the main motivation for what we can look at as the Internet's first true startup. So... First order of business, we're going to do a new mosaic. We might as well lock down the original mosaic team. This is uh, a story that's sort of famous in internet lore. In the late spring of 1994, towards the end, I guess, of probably the uh, spring semester, Jim Clark and Mark Andreessen fly back to Champaign Urbana and they check in to the University Inn. Andreessen has been in touch obliquely with his former colleagues, and he's emailed them and said that something exciting is happening, hang tight. Clark and Andreessen meet their quarry, the original Mosaic team, which at this point constitutes Eric Bina, Alex Tatic, John Middlehauser, Rob McCool, plus Chris Hook and Lou Montuli at a pizza place near the University of Illinois campus. Clark offered each man identical $65,000 a year salaries, one week's paid vacation in Tahiti on Clark's own yacht, and more importantly, 100,000 shares of stock in the new company, as long as each of them would sign on. Clark told the boys, quote, I am pretty sure that your holdings will be worth more than a million dollars. But within five years, if things go the way I hope they will, it is my objective that you make over $10 million, end quote. Clark typed up identical agreement letters on his laptop and had them printed on the University Inn's fax machine. The whole team signed on and retired to a bar named Gully's to celebrate. The team was given their marching orders. They were to build off the work that they had done with Mosaic, but they couldn't replicate it. That was out of the question, because the University of Illinois and the NCSA owned the old Mosaic code. So the new team couldn't just copy it. Clark gave the reconstructed team an ironclad edict. The new browser would have to be rewritten from the ground up. Not one line of code could be borrowed from what had been done before. They were even told not to take even a glance at the old browser, lest their thinking be contaminated. So speed would be the order of the day, but they would also be starting completely from scratch. Speed would be the order of the day because it was in Jim Clark's nature to move quickly. He was eager to exploit this opportunity that Mark Andreessen had shown to him, and also because, well, we'll discuss it later, he was eager for his next great fortune. But speed was also necessary because the Mosaic team was bringing with them news that the NCSA was finally moving to make the Mosaic browser realize its full potential. They were making moves to commercialize the browser. So the new browser that the team would be working on would face competition in no time from the 
old browser that they themselves had created not so long ago. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And things did move quickly. 11,000 square feet of office space was secured above a Mexican restaurant at 650 Castro Street, the main drag in the town of Mountain View, California. Mac, Windows, and Unix versions of the browser were assigned to be developed simultaneously. The browsers and the server code would be rewritten, with a focus on greater speed, greater stability, and newer, better features. This was, in fact, why the original Mosaic team was on board with the overhaul. Their first effort had been a bit of a hobby, a Lark project. As John Middlehauser put it, at the NCSA, quote, We were students. We were just having fun. We had no thoughts about quality, really. End quote. But this time they would do it better and get it right. Here's Middlehauser again, quote, that was the coolest thing about doing Netscape after Mosaic. We literally started from scratch, and we were able to avoid many of the same mistakes while, of course, making new ones. End quote. Experienced engineering managers were brought in to oversee the team. Tom Paquin jumped ship from SGI. Bill Foss, who, of course, had originally turned Clark on to Mosaic in the first place, came aboard as well. A 24-7 work schedule was expected from almost every member of the team from day one. It was not uncommon for programmers to work around the clock and crash under their desks or sleep on futons in the office. One of the duties of Clark's own secretary was to occasionally change the sheets. Engineers in general, and of course software engineers in particular, are used to working long, odd hours, but the media always seems fascinated with this hardcore aspect of startups. Again, it's interesting to see the DNA of startup culture was present even at the first startup of the internet era. Programmers often wear the grueling nature of their profession as a sort of badge of pride. And during this period, a young programmer named Jamie Zawinski posted an online diary of his time working on the initial stages of the Netscape browser project. These posts, which, of course, we would consider blog posts today, captured for us what it was like to be a member of the team as everything got started. Here's Zawinski's online diary entry for Thursday, July 28, 1994, posted apparently at 11 p.m. Quote, I slept at work again last night, two and a half hours curled up in a quilt underneath my desk from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. or so. That's when I woke up with a start, realizing that I was late for a meeting we were scheduled to have to argue about color maps and dithering, and how we should deal with all the nefarious 8-bit color management issues. But it was no big deal. We just had the meeting later. It's hard for someone to hold it against you when you miss a meeting because you've been at work so long that you've passed out from exhaustion. End quote. And here's the entry for Sunday, August 5th, 1994, posted at 5 a.m. Quote, I just got home. The last time I was asleep was, let's see, 39 hours ago. And I'm not even tired right now. I guess I'm on my second or third or 18th wind. I only came home because I was worried that if I stayed there any longer, I'd fall asleep at the wheel again. I didn't want to stay down there for another night because I really need a shower at this point. It was a hot day today, and Lou and I played some intense games of air hockey last night that got me all sweaty and disgusting. End quote. Again, everyone always seems to be so obsessed with the work-hard, play-hard nature of startup culture, 
And again, we're seeing it here in the first startup of the internet era. The air hockey table that Zwinski mentioned was introduced for just such a purpose, to let the engineers let off steam in between their marathon sessions of working. But usage of the air hockey table was curtailed by Clark himself when the competition got so heated that fisticuffs nearly ensued. Rob McCool brought in a radio-controlled car, and that set off an orgy of competition in the office as the engineers competed to soup up their own racers and compete with one another. But the most notorious competitions were the bouts of chair football, which were gladiatorial contests of a sort, pitting contestants against one another while riding atop their rolling chairs. Chair football was brutal and sometimes even bloody, as Bill Foss remembered, quote, we probably took out about 10 chairs because of that game, end quote. Mark Andreessen participated in the chair football games and was reportedly one of the fiercer, more dedicated competitors. But he wasn't part of the marathon coding sessions with the rest of the engineers. In California now, Andreessen had come into his own. If before he was the unofficial leader of the Mosaic team, now things were more official. His title was Vice President of Technology. He didn't manage the engineers directly, as everyone agreed that wasn't his strong suit, but he did jump back into the role of leading the product development and shaping the strategic direction for the new product. Clark made good on his offer to build a company around Andreessen, as from the earliest days Andreessen was referred to as the new company's co-founder, and all accounts indicate that Clark left Andreessen free to decide which features the new software would employ. Zwinski's diary shows that even if Andreessen wasn't a direct manager, he was very much in charge of the project roadmap, making sure that features were developing as expected and that all hands were on deck and rowing in the same direction. Netscape's employee number 18, an engineer named John Giandria, remembered, quote, Mark's way of working was to be in meetings or doing whatever business things during the day, being the face of the company with Clark. Then, in the late afternoon or early evening, he would dive into technical stuff. He'd send out emails, like, at 3 in the morning, saying, Change these 27 things. So then by the next morning, people would be working on those things. End quote. As far as the strategy the new company would pursue, Andreessen looked to the obvious inspiration at the time, Microsoft. Microsoft's operating system had a monopoly hold on the personal computer market. MS-DOS and increasingly Windows were the platforms that the vast majority of the computer world had to build off of and exist in. If you were a programmer and you wanted to create a program that would reach the greatest number of users, then you worked with Bill Gates's platform. Sometimes that meant paying a toll to Gates, and sometimes it didn't. But either way, you played ball with Microsoft, or you found yourself and your program relegated to the hinterlands of the computing world. So here is Andreessen's genius and great insight. More and more, Mark Andreessen began to think of the web browser as a sort of platform for the web and the new internet era in general. Why couldn't the web browser be the DOS slash Windows of the web? It was a user's gateway to doing everything, and everything else could be built off of that. The key was to become ubiquitous, to become the standard. To do that, it helped to be first to the market, but it was also important to be the best in breed of the market. Andreessen said, quote, We knew that the key to success for the whole thing was getting ubiquity. It's basically the Microsoft lesson, right? If you get ubiquity, you have lots of options, a lot of ways to benefit from that. You can get paid by the product that you are ubiquitous on, but you can also get paid on products that benefit as a result. End quote. To this end, and almost from the very beginning, Andreessen's focus would be on making the browser into a new kind of platform that an ecosystem of other uses could be built off of. Throughout its life, Netscape would embrace open-source culture and practices. 
if they were the first browser to introduce support for an innovation to HTML like the center tag, which simply allowed text to be centered on a web page, they didn't make that proprietary. They allowed the new feature to be used by others, hoping that it would become standard and hoping that they would get credit for the innovation and being first. A good example of this is the Secure Socket Layer, or SSL, technology, which Netscape would pioneer. This is the basic encrypting technology that makes secure interactions on the web possible. Netscape's browser would be the first to feature this technology, but they left the underlying standard free for others to use and support. This open attitude towards the technology is what allowed the first e-commerce activities to begin flowering across the web. Netscape benefited as the underlying platform that was the most trusted and valued by users. And it didn't hurt that Netscape would sell a commerce server eventually to merchants that would support SSL and make the transactions possible in the first place. Netscape also readily embraced the work of others, for example, eagerly supporting and incorporating the Java programming language when it came about. And Netscape would even encourage others to build add-ons and plugins that would interact with Netscape's own software, adding features and functions that Netscape itself might not even have dreamt up. Throughout this project, we'll see company after company obsessed with creating or owning a similar platform strategy. Because if you are a platform, you can create an ecosystem off that platform, an ecosystem of developers and software and apps, all dependent on the underlying platform itself. To own a platform is to own the ball field, the rulebook, the turnstiles, the rights to broadcast the game. In short, it's everything. Netscape did not originate this obsession with platforms. It was a lesson that they brought to the web via their study of Microsoft's success. But Netscape's imitation of Microsoft would provide the template that countless other companies on the internet era would follow, even to this day. Aside from leader and strategic visionary, Andreessen filled another new role as well, poster boy. The young company had a public relations guru on staff from very early on, Roseanne Sino. Sino had followed Clark over from SGI. She knew she had a good story on her hands, and as she remembers it, quote, I thought, okay, let's see. I've got the internet, which is hot. I know I can make a big deal out of that. I've got Jim Clark, who's hot. And then I've got this 22-year-old wonder kid. No matter what, it's going to get a lot of coverage, end quote. Soon, Andreessen and Clark were being featured like a dynamic duo in articles like Fortune Magazine's 25 Cool Companies list. Fortune dubbed Andreessen, quote, the hayseed with the know-how, end quote. The San Jose Mercury News featured Andreessen with an article titled, He's Young, He's Hot, and He's Here. I personally would be interested to know if Mark Andreessen was cool with this poster boy role, or if it was thrust upon him. On the one hand, it certainly fit with his previous role as product and philosophical visionary, but on the other hand, I've read plenty of interviews from the time where he seems to chafe at all the attention being focused on him alone. What might have been a mitigating factor was the fact that he really was left alone to direct the development of the web browser project. Jim Clark made good on the promise that he made to let Andreessen free to build a company around his own vision. But that's not to say that Clark didn't have a role to play of his own. For example, it was highly unusual for a startup that didn't have a product and only a couple dozen employees to already have a full-time PR person. But that's what Jim Clark brought to the table, and such was the strength of his Rolodex. While Clark left Andreessen free to guide the creation of the product, he was impatient and wasting no time in forming a larger company that would be ready for the big leagues and quickly. Clark knew that he wanted a world-class CEO for the company someday, and he swung for the fences, setting his sights on Jim Barksdale, a former vice president and chief operating officer at FedEx. At the time, Barksdale was the CEO of McCall Cellular, one of the largest of the early cell phone companies. 
McCall was in the process of merging with AT&T at the time, so Barksdale couldn't join Netscape right away. But Clark convinced him to join the young company's board of directors with an eye towards moving him into the CEO slot once the merger with AT&T was complete. Clark's reputation also secured additional funding from the premier venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. John Doerr was and is a partner at the storied VC firm of Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. During his time at Kleiner Perkins, as the firm, of course, is usually known, Doerr had directed venture capital funding for early technology giants such as Compact, Symantec, Sun Microsystems, Intuit, and uh, Macromedia. Later in the internet era, he would go on to fund Amazon.com and Google, among others. Doerr knew Clark going back to his days teaching at Stanford University, and though Kleiner Perkins' own portfolio company's son had been a major competitor of Silicon Graphics, when Jim Clark announced that he was starting a new company, Doerr was eager to work with him. Clark, however, didn't want to raise a lot of funding for the new company at first. If you'll remember, he had been burned by his SGI experience, so he was initially funding operations out of his own pocket in order to hold on to the equity stake that he could. If Clark wanted the fortune that he thought was due him, he was going to have to hold on to every single percentage point he could in the new Netscape. But he made an exception for Durr, because taking money from Kleiner Perkins gave the new company the imprimatur of class. More crucially, hooking up with Kleiner gave Netscape access to Kleiner's portfolio, the network of entrepreneurs and engineers making up its hundreds of successful companies. The whole reason that someone like Jim Barksdale would even consider taking the CEO position in a small startup company with a 22-year-old co-founder was because John Doerr and Kleiner Perkins were there to help Jim Clark talk Jim Barksdale into it. Thanks to the Kleiner Perkins connection, Jim Shaw, a former engineering vice president from Oracle, was recruited. Mike Homer became vice president of marketing after spending nine years at Apple. And Greg Sands was hired to be the company's first product manager, fresh out of business school at Stanford. Sands, in fact, was also tasked with writing the company's first business plan. The plan estimated that 1995 revenues for the new company would come in at around $50 million. This was a wildly optimistic assumption since A, the product that they were making didn't exist yet, and B, no one knew how the product would make any money. It should be pointed out, however, that while the business plan was certainly off the mark, it happened to be erroneous on the short side. Netscape's actual revenue in 1995 would exceed $80 million. But let's come back to that earlier question about how they were going to make any money. Andreessen's evolving thinking on that would eventually settle on a seemingly radical strategy. The product would be free. Well, not free exactly, but free in a winking, knowing sort of way. Upon release, the web browser would be available for anyone to download the beta versions. Beta, of course, means the work in progress. But if you wanted to own the currently standard version of the software, the one with all the finalized bells and whistles, it would cost you $39 for a license. And even that was fungible. Anyone would be able to download even the full version of the software on a trial basis for 90 days. After that, you were supposed to pay up. But crucially, Netscape would never rigidly enforce the 90-day rule. The software didn't, for example, delete itself or stop working after 90 days. This was all part of Andreessen's larger strategy. Being free would help the browser gain market share, which was the sine qua non of the platform strategy. And it was also partially born out of necessity, because after all, the existing browsers, like Mosaic, which Netscape would be competing against, were already free. So they wouldn't be able to charge money out of the gate, even if their new product was demonstrably better than Mosaic, because Mosaic was free. So Andreessen embraced that as a part of his strategy as well. If, as Andreessen was betting, the web was getting mainstream and was beginning to enter corporate and enterprise markets, then businesses and governments would happily pony up for licenses that would ensure they had the latest and most secure versions of the software. Here again, 
we see Netscape setting the template for what other companies are going to do throughout the entire internet era. To this day, things are generally free on the internet, generally subsidized by advertising. With a few notable exceptions, the web is not hidden behind paywalls or available only to subscribers. Most things on the web are free, though you certainly can pay for add-ons if you're so inclined. Just like most apps on your cell phone are free, but you can pay for pro versions of the app if you want the full-featured experience. But keep in mind also, the browser was only one side of the coin that Netscape would be developing. The browser allowed you to consume what others had created on the web. The creation, however, required the other side of the coin, the server software. Netscape was developing that as well. And with the server software, Netscape had an additional revenue stream that would, in actuality, contribute the vast majority of the company's revenue over the course of its lifetime. Netscape would charge $1,500 for its entry-level server and $5,000 for its premium package. The browser would be kind of sort of free, but the server software would cost thousands of dollars. The creators of content had motivation to pay up, of course, Users might expect free, but if creators wanted to reach users, and hopefully make money off them, then it was reasonable to expect an investment in the server software up front. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. For his part, Jim Clark was on board with all of these strategic decisions. His overreaching imperative remained speed. Speed and to a lesser extent quality, of course, would allow Netscape to dethrone Mosaic and lock down the browser market before any other competitors could show up on the scene. Speed would set the market standard and allow Andreessen's goal of creating a new platform paradigm to become a reality. The need for speed was a reflection of Clark's impatient nature. But the speed imperative was also born out of Clark's strong belief that this was an amazing once-in-a-lifetime market, and if they could only get big enough fast enough, they could own it. And that's what the grueling deadlines were all about. That's what the rapid increase in hiring and headcount was all about. It was a gold rush. Now that he was actually knee-deep in his second act, Clark was more convinced than ever that the original insight that he had with Andreessen was correct, that the web was the information superhighway. It was the future, but delivered today. And thus far, only he and Andreessen could see it. In his autobiography, Clark would write, quote, It was as if I had walked into a field strewn with diamonds and found those already there were discussing the future of the area as an ostrich farm. There aren't many occasions in an entrepreneur's life when none of his competitors have as yet caught on to something fairly obvious. End quote. So Clark's focus remained on speed, and this dovetailed with Andreessen's focus, which was on growth and market share before profits. Both men were convinced that if they got big enough, profits would inevitably come at some later date. Both were certain that the web and the internet were a land grab, and if they got there first, they could set up their own platform, which others would have to play on. In this very crucial strategy, Netscape would set the template again for what so many in the internet era have attempted. All of those eventual startups for whom the mantra get big fast was not just a strategy, not just a way of life, but a business plan in and of itself. Now, some of you might have had a nagging question about the name of the company. After all, at this point, it's still being called Mosaic Communications Corporation. And Mosaic, of course, was still the name of the browser owned by the University of Illinois and the NCSA. In May 1994, the name and the Mosaic technology had been licensed to a company named Spyglass Incorporated, which had been formed specifically to commercialize NCSA technologies. Spyglass would use the technology to begin a very lucrative business creating 
browsers and licensing them to various companies for use. Spyglass was actually the ninth company to license the Mosaic technology, but their license was by far the largest, allowing them to distribute millions of copies of the software. And Spyglass had the legal right to the trademark Mosaic. So we have to wonder why it was that Clark and Andreessen thought they could stick with the name Mosaic to begin with. Clearly they were aware of copyright and infringement implications, or else they wouldn't have had the team code the new browser from scratch. For their part, the Spyglass people were certainly aware of what Clark and Andreessen were up to, since the Spyglass browser team was comprised of a large number of former NCSA employees as well. The name was a blazing red flag to the university and the NCSA, almost daring them to shout copycat at this other mosaic. My own theory on this is that Clark and Andreessen were thinking of the term mosaic in a generic way, in the way that an FTP client is FTP and uses that accordingly. I think that they were thinking in terms of mosaic in the way that we think of, say, BitTorrent. It was the generic term that they thought would take hold for the type of software they were working with. Obviously, we ended up calling that piece of software a web browser, not a mosaic, but I think that that's probably where their heads were at at the time. In the fall of 1994, however, the University of Illinois did come calling, inevitably demanding a 50 cent per copy royalty on any software Mosaic Communications might be ready to distribute. Clark refused the university's demands, which he called extortion. Clark also retained the services of a forensic software expert who declared that there was no infringement of any intellectual property rights in regard to the browser code. Armed with this ruling, and in an effort to be conciliatory, Clark told the university that the name of the browser would change. That was enough to calm things down for the time being. Greg Sands, the guy who had been brought on to write the business plan, was now tasked with coming up with a new name for the browser and the server software. He solicited the entire company for ideas. Among the rejected names bandied about were Infocar, Infosuck, Infojockstrap, and Infocondom. Info anything, apparently. Sans' own favorite, Netscape Navigator, was the eventual winning name for the new browser, and Netscape would soon be adopted as the name for the overall company as well. On October 12, 1994, a mere six months after Mosaic Communications Corporation had been incorporated, now officially called Netscape, the marathon sessions of hard work were scheduled to pay off. A beta version of Navigator, version 0.9, would be made available on the web for anyone to download at midnight. At about 2 p.m. that day, the power in the office building went out. There were screams among the frazzled development team. Power was restored in time, and around midnight, October 13th, the program was uploaded to the FTP server. In the accompanying press release, Andreessen was quoted as saying, quote, We expect Netscape's ease of use to spark another major leap in internet usage by making the net a powerful tool for a broader base of users. By incorporating security and advanced functionality, Netscape now lays the foundation for commerce on the net. End quote. The first downloads went to users in Japan and Australia, since those were the people that were awake at the time. Someone broke out the beer in the office, and celebrations commenced amongst the various programmers. Sound cues were quickly added to announce which version of the browser was being downloaded. A cow would move for every Windows version a bell chimed for every Mac download, and a cannon fire for every Unix download. The various teams would cheer when their version of the software was downloaded. The servers strained under the demand, but thankfully they held up. By the next morning, tens of thousands of copies had been disseminated. Netscape Navigator really was a generational improvement over the other browsers available up to that point. If the web was finally ready for the big time, Navigator was the browser that would make that possible. It was designed to be fast, even working under the constraints of the 14.4 KB modem that was the standard speed at the time. 
Netscape's own internal measures said that Navigator could load a web page 10 times faster than Mosaic. In this narrowband era, Navigator innovations like allowing users to interact with documents while they were still being downloaded, rather than having to wait for the entire page to load, were a big deal. Navigator allowed simultaneous downloads, and it was the first browser to natively support the JPEG image format. And as mentioned previously, there was a focus on commerce. Navigator shipped with SSL encryption and server authentication, which, paired with Netscape's NetSuite commerce server, which would be out in that November, making safe e-commerce possible on the web for the first time. Mosaic had made the early web more enticing for normal computer users, and now Navigator was laying the groundwork for the modern web as we understand it today. Early reviews from users and from the media were rapturous. Businessweek said that Netscape could, quote, make the internet a mass medium for home shopping, banking, and a host of other services, end quote. The early beta release was part of the extreme speed strategy. Netscape 1.0 would not actually ship until December 15, 1994. The two months of beta releases in between allowed Netscape to get its name out there and begin claiming market share while still refining the product. As the engineer Giandria remembers, quote, The concept that was unusual was doing a beta. The idea that you could ship the thing before it was ready and invite people to download it, and then they'd let you know what the bugs were. It was like saying, here's a beta version. It's free. Please help us test it. End quote. Andreessen described the strategy this way. Quote, you keep kicking versions out the door, making them better. Any individual product is less important than the basic idea. If a beta turns people off, you put out a beta that turns them back on. End quote. The beta versions, and then the official 1.0 versions, were downloaded millions of times, then tens of millions of times. Netscape's browser quickly gained a reputation for being fast, stable, and feature-rich. Navigator included so many web innovations that didn't exist before or weren't supported by existing browsers that a funny phenomenon began. Website after website started posting little buttons that read, Best Viewed in Netscape, with a link that sent you to the Navigator download page. Webmasters wanted to show off the cool new things that Navigator allowed them to do, and so they steered their users to Netscape organically. This is a classic example of what would come to be known as viral marketing, where the very use of a product can serve as an advertisement for others to try out that same product. It's a word-of-mouth advertising method on steroids, a strategy that web companies rely on heavily even to this day. Netscape wasn't just writing the viral nature of its own success. It was completely and symbiotically writing the explosion of the World Wide Web in general. It was estimated at the time that 20 million people were on the internet when the Navigator beta was first released, and the web itself was, at this point, still doubling every few months. So as more people started using the web, the more content was put on the web, and that in turn drew more new people to the web, and all those new people now came to the web via Netscape Navigator. It was a vicious but virtuous cycle. In what felt like no time, Netscape had become the most popular browser on the web, and the most downloaded piece of software in the history of the internet up to that point. Navigator quickly eclipsed Mosaic. At the start of 1994, the original Mosaic and its variants controlled about 95% of the web browser market. At the end of October, a mere two months after the release of the beta version of Navigator, Navigator had captured 18% of the market. By early the next year, 1995, Navigator was used by 55% of web surfers. And by 1996, 45 million copies of Navigator had been downloaded. Netscape by that point controlled a full 80% of the browser market. Forget about internet software. At that point, Navigator was probably the second most used software program of any kind in history, behind only Windows or DOS. Early Netscape employee John G. and Andrea put it this way, quote, 
Now people take for granted that they'll put out a version of something and a million copies will be downloaded in a week. But nothing like that had ever happened before. End quote. In his book, A Brief History of the Future, John Naughton described Netscape's success this way. Quote, Netscape had effectively launched an era when you could finish a product one day and have hundreds of thousands of users the next. The old era of the two-year product cycle was over. 